Welcome to Good Life Project, where we take you behind the scenes for in-depth, candid conversations with artists, entrepreneurs, makers, and world shakers. Here's your host, Jonathan Fields. Hi, I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. My guest today is Jesse Kornbluth, who writes and founded headbutler.com. It's sort of this incredible cultural concierge website. And he also is an author, uh, former contributing editor to Vanity Fair, uh, contributor to New York, a whole bunch of amazing media outlets, uh, editorial director for a number of years at AOL, and all-around cool person. So great to be hanging out. I'm extremely happy to be right here. <laughs> it's so much better than all those things you talked about. <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, people say, oh, head butler. But, you know... The point is, after a certain age, you can't say freelance writer. It's just like, no one wants me, right? right. Well, that's like me saying entrepreneur. Right. You, well, <laughs> you have to be, have a brand, right? right? You have to make it easy. I mean, I once asked John Cheever, I said, what does the Pulitzer Prize mean to you? And he said, absolutely nothing, but it makes you into shredded wheat. It makes it easier for other people. Nah. So people say, oh, head butler, and they ask you to things, and they try and get in. And I, said, and I thought, you know, if you knew, right, if head butler were what I did, we'd be living in the park. <laughs> <laughs> Head Butler is what I do because I can't help myself because uh, I went to a school where you wrote a daily theme mm. and I believe in that. And also, as I said, because I fell in love as a kid with a guy named Pico della Mirandola, known to all of your, view your viewers, a Renaissance scholar who at age 23 said, I will write about all human knowledge in 900 essays. And I thought, that is so cool. And did he? Yes, he did. <laughs> he did. And I thought, so I'll write, oh, maybe I can like, like 900 books, movies, music. Uh, and then I'll stop. And now I'm at like 2,000 and there's no end to it. <laughs> You're like, damn, it's just going to go on forever and ever and ever. But what, but what you don't have in all those things you described yeah. is, is real communication. Mm. I mean, I'm really good virtually, right? I mean, I've, you know, I've, got, I've got that pers you know, personality that's good on the page, mm -hmm. and I'm responsive to my readers. But you know, there's a hierarchy, which is, for me anyway, uh, virtu uh, virtual relationships, good. Mm. Phone, you're already on the downhill slope, and then you meet. You know, <laughs> and where can it go from there? I mean, it can go up, but it will go, it generally will also go down. Because uh -huh. you know, people can be so annoying. <laughs> but when they're at a remove, I mean, I have these best friends I've never met. It's great. And a lot of them. Uh, so enough of them. But it's nice to be with you, right? Because it's so vivid for me. It's mm. so much, it's so unusual. And uh, so already I'm loving this. Yeah. Well, and as am I. But it's a really interesting sort of jumping off point because I, like you, spend a ton of time online. Like I write, I do other stuff. But a huge amount of my conversation, my interaction with people is, you know, digits. Um, and it's a radically different experience when you get in a room with somebody. And I think we're losing that to a large extent. I know you have mixed feelings with being face-to-face -face with people, but there's a certain amount of humanity that I think is going out the window because so much of our default conversation is not face-to-face -face anymore. We are. I mean, look, for everything you gain, you lose something else. I mean, a poet I love wrote, how bright a light there must be to cast so dark a shadow. Mm. So for everything you're given, something is taken away. So, yes, uh, for me, uh, the problem is that this is so, as I say, so vivid that my enthusiasm for it uh, is, is often inappropriate. <laughs> and you say, well, what's this guy's problem? Has he been in like a jail for 20 years? <laughs> but it, it's like, go, you know, I used to say, you know, let's go out and eat some people. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and eat some people? 
Yeah, because I mean they don't know. They're right. going through their day. I mean, when I worked in an office, was which I did only once. I mean, a non-recurring phenomenon, if ever there was one. Um, wow, well, I didn't know when you got work done. Mm. You're either flirting or in meetings, right? And I'd start to work at five. Right. This was not. This isn't what I wanted to do. It is a little bit of a bizarre thing. Um, so you've been out of. Uh, was that one office setting? Was that the AOL thing? Yeah, it was. Which was immense fun the first year because. There was no adult supervision mm -hmm. I could create. And you remember at the end of Butch Cassidy, I know you do, when they go to Bolivia and they're trying to get hired on this wagon train to yeah. protect the gold. And the guy says, can you shoot? Simon says, yeah, maybe I can shoot. And he tosses it up in the air and he misses the bottle. Ah, you can't shoot. Sundance says, can I move? And the guy tosses it up in the air and Sundance jukes around like, you know, a uh, a tight end who just scored his first touchdown, uh -huh. and he shoots the hell out of the thing. It's just shards of glass. Right. And he says, I'm better when I move. Mm. So for me, the absence of adult supervision was great. And then the second year, the, as I say, a Taliban of white male MBA swept in, <laughs> and that was the end of it. So, so what's, because that was 2002-ish? No, uh, no, I was there for the golden years, ah. and for five splits, okay. five stock splits. Yeah. Uh, but I was there from 97 to 2002, and I was brought there to help transform a tech company into a media company. Right. Uh, note to self, can't be done. <laughs> well, and apparently, as we all see in the public, too, it's, it's been an interesting time there. Well, but it was so interesting because it was the exact thing we're talking about. Uh, we had the magic sauce, mm. <coughs> which was a community, and we right. walked away from it. I remember being in a meeting where there, we had seven, a group called Jewish Singles. We had 70,000 of them. And so I mean, well, we need to kick them off the service. Why? We don't know how to monetize this. To monetize this, we have 70,000 people paying 24 hours a month. Right. What more do you want? But, you know, that's not how MBAs think. Mm. So, um, so, I mean, it was, it, was, it was very instructive. But I also wouldn't generalize from the experience. I mean, there, there, there are better companies than this. Yeah. I mean, it's also interesting because it brings a conversation to this idea of, and we were just talking about this before, and you're asking, like, how do you monetize this? And how do you monetize conversations online? How do you monetize building community online? Um, as more and more people are, I think, striving to find community online, or, or they're having trouble finding it locally and they're going online. Um, and then you have people trying to figure out, well, if this is what I'm doing a lot of the times, how do I actually, how do I thrive? How do I flourish doing this? Which kind of circles around to an interesting question about you. So, headbutt. I just interrupt. Yeah, yeah. That's a spectacularly bad idea. <laughs> right. Monetizing people's dreams and hopes. I mean, it, there's no, I mean, there are greater degrees of exploitation, you know, white slavery and, you know, the sex trade. But really, you have people at their most vulnerable reaching out to other people and you are thinking, okay, how can I take this to a VC? I mean, if that's what your aim is, right, right. then I hope you fail. I mean, there may be a way to monetize it, but I haven't seen it, and I'm not particularly looking for it. Sorry to interrupt. Back no, to no, no, go ahead, because it's a really interesting conversation, right? So then how, how do you take somebody and inspire them to devote their heart, soul, and potentially resources to building the container, even, to create that gorgeous, flourishing community and take time, money, and energy away from something else? Like, what's the... I mean, let's go deeper in the conversation. Well, curiously, this is the book I'm writing next with two very bright women. Okay. 
So I can't tell you the answer. <laughs> you have to pay me for the answer. That'll be $24.95. Oh, my hopes, my aspirations. No. Are you going to charge me for that? But the answer is, all you can do, do is empower them to, do, to be where they are and do what they need to mm. do. They don't have to do it in your space. What ferocious ego is that mm. to say, I want to own this conversation? Right. I mean, it's like, so something, as long as I'm ranting, uh, people say, my daughter. I said, no, no. Our daughter. Mm. Right? And it's like, I have my friends. What is this ownership? I mean, it's just, I mean, there's, you know, greed at every level. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm very sensitive to it. I mean, my poor daughter, our poor daughter. Not, not meaning our. Uh, I mean, <laughs> the word journey drives me crazy. Mm. Journey. You're not on a journey. You're having a life. Right? Journey is a word that should be used by best supporting actresses as they're getting the award. I'd like to thank all the people who helped me get here on my journey, right? <laughs> yeah, fine, I would have called it a career, but you know, you can call it a journey. So it's like, I think the language, uh, I mean, the, the, the question you posed is a good one because everybody poses it. Right. It's just a bad question. Hmm. Journey. Um, uh, there's some others too. Don't 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 warm me up here. Yeah, I mean the, the the bigger thing for me is you obviously have a fierce interest in the impact of language, like on a level that most people just don't think about it. Wittgenstein, the limits of language are the limits of life. Hmm. Anything Wittgenstein also anything that can be said can be said clearly. Sure, language is that is language is how people screw us up. They make us do things that are against our interests or confuse us or dazzle us or paralyze us. I mean, mass media is one big bedazzlement. And uh, you know, if you know anything about anything and you watch a new show on TV, it's just like you're screaming at the set. I mean, it's like back in the days when you would watch, you know, Nixon talk or Bush talk. You know, you say, no, no, no. It's like you know better. And like you see Joe Scarborough, you say, really? Are you that stupid? No, you're not that stupid. You're being paid to be stupid. Mm. So, um, yeah, words are really important, and saying what you mean are important. I mean, a, a, a producer once told me, there's always more money, you only have one, one name. Stupidly, I believe that. I don't think a ton of people do. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting, because words, I mean, on so many levels, both on a, on a protection level, but also on a... Um, words can... They're such a powerful source of creation. Um, and direction and misdirection. And I think a lot of what you were just talking about also is words as manipulation to a certain extent, or words as trying to move people to a point of view regardless of, maybe not regardless of consideration of like what the impact of that would be, but because of that, um, but not so much in the context of wanting, for lack of a better term, the greater good to unfold. Well, this is why I like the web particularly, I mean, my version of the web. I mean, what I do on Head Butler is the best version to me. Hmm. I mean, obviously, you only have to be with me for a few minutes to know I'm slicker than snail snot, <laughs> right? I mean, I can do this. I have a little Jesse bot. Yeah. He can go out and be great. And people say, wow, that guy is so smart. He knows all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. He's sort of an asshole, but, you know, whatever. But what I'm doing on Butler is I'm only, I never do bad reviews unless I'm really disturbed about something. And then I do mm. consumer warnings, right. and they're very short. No, I think everyone wants better. Everyone wants, wants more light. Everyone wants to have a fuller life. And that's, 
That's what I'm about. So essentially, when I'm doing the things I, I mean, look, some things you're just writing about this or that, but the things that really grab me, you know, I want you to want them because, mm. and I basically, you know, you end up touching subjects where you're, you're, you know, you're holding people's hearts in your hand, and they're holding yours, and that's so cool. Mm. Uh, I don't have message boards because I don't really want to have the, the trolls and the conversation. But I have a vibrant relationship with people who write to me. And I know when certain things come up. I mean, I did a piece. That usually, I, I can sell these pieces at the time, so couldn't. It, it's called um, Here Comes the Night. And it's, I have four friends who died last year in their 60s. Mm. And I'm in my 60s, and I thought, pay attention. And I wrote this piece. And it was like I'd never written a piece before. You know, whew. And other people have had this experience, right? You know, yeah. suddenly the, you know, the march of death comes across, and there's the guy with the scythe. So, those were amazing days, right? For a couple of days afterwards, just dealing with it. Nah. So yeah, I love that. That's incredible. But, you know, if my intent is bad, that doesn't. That's, that's not going to work. Nah. Because you know, as you know, your readers are smarter than you are. <laughs> the people who watch the show right. collectively are smarter than we are. Right. And so you really got to, you really got to be your best. Yeah. Do you know that? I don't mean to go on, but you know the 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 uh, the, the Salinger story mm. about shining your shoes. No. Um, the Glass family in the, sh the short stories have this show called "It's a Wise Child." Right? They're all very bright mm. Jewish children from New York, and the youngest one says, "I'm not going on. I don't want to go on." And the oldest brother, the one who will commit suicide, says, "You will go on." And you will not only go on, you will shine your shoes. He says, why do I have to shine my shoes? It's radio. He said, you shine your shoes because there's a woman who listens to the show. And she sits on her porch in Kansas. And it's hot. And she's sweaty. And she could be overweight. And she could have a fatal disease. You do it for her. And from then on, he shines his shoes. And so that's how I, you know, when I sit down at the Jewish piano or the Jewish keyboard or whatever it is I call that, you know, this computer. Yeah. And I'm about to hit that first note. I mean, I just sort of, you know, throw it up and say, hold my hand. Yeah. Which, I mean, it's so powerful. It's, it's so powerful for me to hear you say that because I'm much earlier in my own writing career. And, um, and that's one of my struggles. You, one of my struggles is to go to that place where I throw it up. It helps to be desperate. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Things aren't bad enough but for you get, yet. But to get to that, to get to that level where you will just, you'll go to that place and be that raw and that vulnerable and that real and that true, and then bring that out. And well, it's weird. I now write liner notes for Paul Simon of all things, <laughs> which is like so fun. Why not do that? Right. As a friend of mine says, uh, who's a friend of Paul, said, "Remember, a B plus from Paul is not a passing grade." So, um, you know, I work on them, and. Uh, I just finished this novel, and I look at this book, I haven't for a while, and then I look at it and think, I don't write that well. Mm. Who wrote that? And this is a really bad analogy, but Paul said about Bridge Over Troubled Water, he said, you know, I'm really good, and everyone knows Paul, think, Paul thinks he's good. He said, but I'm not that good, something happened. So, you know, you try and get in a place where something happens, and it doesn't happen every day. But all you can do is show up and try and do your work. I mean, yeah. that's, that's what it is. And I know you feel it when, you hit, when, you, when that happens. You're not there. Yeah. I don't remember doing Agreed. those things. 
I've looked at like the occasional piece afterwards, and I barely remember writing it. You know, and there there are those moments where you you go to that place. But here's the trick, actually. I mean, if we yeah. can do a little writing class. Um, I mean, I did a book with Twyla Tharp, and so I read all of her stuff. And uh, the, her first book was called The Creative Habit. Right, great book. And it's, as you know, it's all about muscle memory. Right. There is no creativity. There is work. Right. And you do your work every day, and it, you have a shot. Yeah. But if you're sitting waiting for God to tell you your marching orders, good luck. No. No, I mean, it's, and I completely believe that. I um, um, became friendly with Steve Pressfield a couple of years back. You know. right. His book essentially has got a whole book that essentially says that. He's like, you know, Pressfield's a nightmare. Pro. He says, I mean, it's like rigid. rigid lose rigid. your wife, <laughs> quit your job. If you, <laughs> you want to do this, do this. Yeah, I mean, what, what's so funny is like, and Pressfield in real life is actually a very loving, gentle guy, <laughs> but he, he writes with a huge amount of bravado. But, um, but I think there's so much mythology around that, right? It's just like, you know, that it's just the muse will hit at any random time, and that's when you create rather than, you know, you show up every single day and it's almost like that's it may happen it may not but like your job is to show up and do the work but i've talked to people and they're like who are prolific and have written some really good stuff or created or painted and there's a radically different i mean people war over this <laughs> people lie about this i think uh, maybe that mark Knopfler told me that chet atkins told him you should <laughs> that's a double name drop uh, <laughs> you should fall asleep with the guitar in your hand and Knopfler, as you may know, I believe fired his brother from Dire Straits because he didn't feel he practiced Did enough. He really? So I have heard. But uh, no, people want the magic. No one wants to do the work. Right. And wow. the work's a bloody bore. Yeah. But on the other hand, uh, if it's what you're, if we, you know, once you know what you're supposed to do, life gets a lot simpler. Hmm. I mean, I don't think I can do anything else. I think I'm without talent. The show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions, and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard-won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new Marketing Hub Enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personal 
personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at HubSpot.com slash Wondery. That's HubSpot.com slash Wondery. When did you think that, when would you, when you, were you able to say that? Age eight. Sure. Serious? Of course. And here's the other thing, okay? Malcolm Gladwell, right? With the 10,000 hours, right? That, uh, you know, you spend 10,000 hours and after that you have some mastery and you can do it, or at least you'll know if you can do it. And as an example, he uses the Beatles. In 1961-62, they go to Hamburg and they play five hours a night in this club. They're taking speed to do it, right? They do it for months at a time. And when they come back, they're the Beatles. So, a book comes out, the first of three, a thousand pages, History of the Beatles. An amazing book. The first volume takes you to 1962. And that's how, that's how you know, granular it is. And someone then read the book and uh, wrote a piece and said, you know, that wasn't it. The Beatles didn't come back as the Beatles, they went as the Beatles. Because what was the defining thing? And, and this is another now book I want to write. It's mm. called In Your Face, Colon, The Power of Arrogance. Right? Mm. The Beatles thought they were the best things ever. That it was just a matter of time before people figured it out. But they were arrogant. And they say so. I mean, they got come back from Hummer, they get rejected by six labels, they finally get a deal, and the record company tells them the songs are going to be on it. And John Lennon says, Love Me Do is on it, or we're out of here. What do they have to go back to? Liverpool. Nothing. Hmm. But, okay, record company allowed it, Love Me Do came out, and they were the Beatles, right? right? And I, you know, I see this everywhere. I mean, as Dizzy Dean, the baseball player, said, it ain't bragging if you can do it. So, yeah. Hard work and arrogance is, is really, to me, what the formula is. Mm. Which leads to craft, which leads to those moments where you access something magical. You know, uh, yeah, I, I a craft is important. I mean, it, it's this point, it's like in my DNA, because uh, here's the real dirty secret. I type with one finger. So There's I, two of us, by the way. Okay. So I try not to have to do it a lot of times, right? And so I'm looking for the entrance point. I'm looking, mm. um, I mean, what Orwell calls, you know, prose like a window pane is what I'm looking for. Other people are very stylish. I'm not, very, I'm not a stylish writer. I have no style. Subject, verb, object. No adverbs. Adjectives as, as necessary. I mean, Hemingway was a fairly great writer, though it's turned into something else. James Salter, right? There's a little space between those sentences, and everything happens in that space. Mm. So, yeah, but for me, and, 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 and Kurt Vonnegut, the first thing you do is make friends with the reader. Put out a hand and say hi. First sentence of my novel. There's no woman more beautiful than a woman reading a book. Because as it must be clear, I'm pretty much only interested in women. And this is a book I think women want to read or would read if they could somewhat publish it. Uh, and right away I'm saying to a woman reading a book, I think you're beautiful, which I do, totally do. And, uh, you know, well, my 
ex-wife, one of them said, um, a little sincerity goes a long way. I think, yeah, okay, a little sincerity. So craft, I think, is sort, sort of overrated. I think having something to say is that, kind, of the, kind of the point. Huge, huge. And, and I, I think it's so interesting also because now that everybody has the tools to say something, that having something to say is getting lost even more. Well, it also gets lost because we're all, you, you only, we're all, we all are standing on the shoulders of somebody else, right? right? Of course. So if you haven't read anything except blogs, if all you watch is a reality show, what do you have as a model? Mm. Tweets. Well, tweets are haiku. I mean, actually, there's some really, I mean, there's some tweets. I, I know, I've actually seen some like incredible creativity within the context of that. But I don't think I could commercialize, I don't think I could monetize, to use your <laughs> word, tweets. So, um, you know, I think occasionally you have to like read a real book. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, I think we're in the middle of this really fascinating window, creative window in terms of like, it's almost like the soul of creation is evolving and I'm not sure how or where it is evolving. I, I would never pass judgment to say whether I think it's good or bad, but it's changing. But I don't think so. I mean, uh, it's interesting because when I, when I started this project, which is, I don't know, around two years ago now actually, wow. Um, People thought I was nuts because I wanted to do video that was longer than like four minutes. I wanted to actually be able to have a conversation like this, you know, and move beyond the soundbite shtick that's everywhere else. Do you know who Morris Dees is? No. He founded the Southern Poverty Law Center. He's a great man, mm. a great man. I did a piece on Morris a long time ago and it was like, you couldn't open the car door, it was so armored, and if you kicked underneath, you know, you hit the shotgun because he's on everyone's kill list. Morris started out as a marketer, and he wrote a book, uh, he started the Alabama Cake Service, right? Send your boy a birthday cake, mm. made a lot of money. Then he got into mail order, he wrote a book called Mail Me a Million, <laughs> good old southern boy. And then he got to George McGovern, and he wrote a seven-page solicitation letter. And they said, oh, Morris, no, please, you can't send this letter. Solicitation letters are a page. Morris sent the letter got a 35% response. Mm. They said, Morris, what can we do for you? He said, I'd like the mailing list. And he started the Southern Poverty Law Center. The point is, you can go long if you've got something to say and yeah. if you've got the heart to say it in a way that people want to hear it. Yeah, and, and that's been my philosophy. I said, in my mind, there's, there's no such thing as too long, there's too boring, there's too right. disinterested, there's too... I work for but, people who said, if there isn't a, a buy link within 400 words, forget it. Hmm. But, but here's the question, do you know who watches this? Yeah, I have a pretty good sense because it's a very, I have a huge, in, interestingly, similar, like I don't have a comment section for this, but I get more email in response to this than anything I've ever done. So I, now granted, in, you know, that is a tiny, tiny fragment, but I also have some really cool metrics because now I can go to YouTube and actually I know where in the world people are, I know their age, I know their demographics, I know a lot about them, which is kind of probably more than people realize, <laughs> to mm -hmm. be honest with you. So it's interesting, I can, I can give you a decent profile of the average viewer of this show, and, and it's, it's not kids. You know, there's, there are a fair amount of, you know, like 20 something, but it's mostly more sort of, you know, like mid 40s, or like 35 to 55, um, definitely skews more female than male. And when they write you, what do they say they're getting? Um, it's two things. Um, one, and this is something I really tried to understand. One of the big things is um, a body of proof. Um, it's, it's not just inspiration, but it's there but for God's grace go five people like me and they're doing okay. 
And so me sitting here telling myself that I can't do is I'm having trouble justifying my rationalization when I see more and more people paraded in front of me who are me but 10 times worse and they're doing what I aspire to do and won't. And that is very likely the single biggest reason that I continue to do okay, this. Here, here's what I hear when you say that. Yeah. We went to see American Hustle on the first day it was out. And the Times review was a rave. All the reviews were a rave. You know, this is the Oscar. Uh, and my, I mean, my wife and I hated this movie so much. I mean, so much that at the end she said, you know, I could have left at any time. And I said, well, why didn't you say so? <laughs> right? So, because it was a set of uh, shtick. Uh, you know, everyone, sort of like August, Osage County, the same story. We're going to assemble a cast, and that cast is going to get nominated, right? And they're going to do all that performance to be nominated. And so it's not a movie. It's a, a set of... Uh, of of, of uh, ego shows. Anyway, so we're sitting there in this totally packed audience, and the audience is very unhappy because they have been told this is a great movie, and they're not enjoying it. Mm. So what they have to do is invalidate their own experience in order to think it was great. So what I hear you saying is people get, I'm not alone, Somebody knows how to do this. It's possible to do this. Is that is that sort it's of part of it? Yeah. I mean, that's part of it. And, but I think the the other thing I was going to say mm. is the I'm not alone thing. I think it's huge. Um, you know, the I, I think there's such a pervasive sense of isolation, um, and 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 like we are we have never been more connected and, and simultaneously more disconnected. And to to find a sense of belonging in some way, shape, or form, um, to me, if is powerful. It is, but it's also tricky, and this is why. Ian Forster, at the start of um, Passage to India, says, only connect. Mm -hmm. But I think what you and I are saying is, no, no, only disconnect. First, you have to disconnect from that so you can connect to this. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, and that is powerful. Yeah. Because that does not love you. Right. It does not see you as anything but something, something to be exploited. And it will hurt you if it has to. Mm. Um, and this doesn't want anything from you. I mean, it wants to be liked, because it's human, but that's a human thing. It doesn't necessarily want your money. It doesn't want you to pay allegiance. It doesn't want to organize you into a political group. It's uh, sort of like a kind of self-selecting karma club. Good Life Project is supported by Signature Hardware. So if you're looking for the perfect item to take your kitchen or bathroom or house up a notch, head over to SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. They offer an incredibly wide variety of pieces for every room in your house with more than 20 years experience supplying vanity, sinks, tubs, hardware, plus all the classics, latest styles, and they're in sync with all the trending colors and design touches. And they also have amazing customer service to help guide you through the process. So you'll never feel lost or intimidated. Gotta love a company that really stands behind what they offer. Stephanie and I actually picked out a collection of eight furnishings that we love. They're unique and are 100% our style, so maybe you'll like them too. And you can see for yourself at SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. You'll be amazed at the variety and the quality. So visit SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife to find your style today. That's SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. Or just click the link in the show notes now. Real life is an always perfect, but with signature hardware, it is beautiful. 
was standing with Donnie Graham at a conference a few years ago. I don't always name drop like that. I always do. I always do. <laughs> so, and I said, and I knew him from Harvard. Another name drop. But okay, so I, and I say, uh, you know, Donnie, you know how it is when you say the thing you never should say, but you always do, you can't help it. I said, Donnie, the things I believed when I was 19, I still believe them. He said, well, I don't. I thought, obviously you don't. <laughs> I mean, I, I've read your newspaper. Um, but it, 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 and I think there are other people, and uh, you know, we recognize them and, uh, we, when they, they, they appear to us. And what you're doing is, it seems to be creating a place where they, they kind of gather. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, and, and to me, um, I think that's what I aspire to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, how effectively I'm actually doing that, I think to me is still an well, evolving It's hugely scary because you, you don't know the end game. Right. I mean, do you ever read Childhood's End by Arthur Clarke? No. It's the greatest science fiction book ever, he said. Um, you know, the children turn are, are, are different. They're different. Mm. And the children all go in the forest and they hold hands and they form a chain and they run through the forest and that energy ends the world. It's quite, very powerful. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, it, isn't, it isn't the end you would have written. Right. So, um, there's a, that Pema Chodron story, which I do in my book too. A uh, family has one son and they love him beyond measure. That, right, and he falls off a horse and right. his legs are crushed, and a week later the Tsar's soldiers come and take everyone who's uh, fit to right. be in the army, and they, he gets to stay. And Pema Chodron says, so that's the thing, is, is this good or is this bad? Right. We don't know. And I spend a lot of time, you know, thinking, because I'm a quick, judgmental, facile Jew, um, wait a minute, you don't know. And I'm, so I find myself not having opinions on all manner of things that I used to absolutely know what the, what the answer was. Mm. I mean, we sat the other night with these people I'm writing with, and they told us the real stories of about ten things. Because they knew the real stories. They were in the room. They were consulting the CEO. They knew this, they knew that. No. I was like, God, are we children? I mean, I was cynical about those stories, but I had no idea what was going on. So I'm very tentative. But I do like the process. I do believe this is what we should be doing. I mean, I don't know, until I know a better thing to do, this is a good thing to do. Yeah, and, and I think I, and I think it's part of why I wrote my last book, is that um, I seem to repeatedly go to a place, and it seems like you, and I think anybody who has this desire to create goes to this place of deep uncertainty and lives there for extended periods of time. And, um, and you have to go there. To, because if you don't, then you're replicating, and I'm not particularly drawn to lep- Yeah, I, I, I want to actually bring something different um, out there. Not, not that there is something different, but my voice. Well, I hope it, people appreciate how hard it is for us to do this. Uh, <laughs> that, okay, in, in, in the following way. I was once at a dinner for 10 people, and I, I could do the name drop, but let me spare it. Let's just say I was the least person in the room by a magnitude, right? Okay. <laughs> And the hostess said, let's go around the table and use one word to describe it, each to, to describe ourselves. And it's indomitable, superior, unbeatable, and it gets to me and I say, ambivalent. Mm. Right? And I thought, and there it is, right? So um, the tricky thing is to be both accomplished and arrogant and ambivalent. I mean, to have all those things. You know, it's like, as, as, 
as, as we talk, it's like adding more ingredients to the, to, to the recipe, but, yeah. but. Yeah, but, I mean, the, to me, I think the challenge is finding grace and uncertainty, you know, which, <laughs> pain in children. I mean, that's fundamentally, probably why I'm so drawn to Buddhism, actually. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure, though, that the thing we call grace is grace. That's the thing. I'm not mm. sure I'd know it if, it if it bit me. I mean, I have a bias, and certain feelings come over me, and, you know, there's the chanting, and the this, and, you know, but I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure. Yeah. And I don't think, uh, I'm sure, language, again, we're, we're going to define it very differently. You know, for me, it's, for me, first level is not dying. <laughs> in the face of great uncertainty because it causes a huge amount of suffering. I physical, say every day, survival is victory. Yeah, you know, and for a long time that was, you know, part of the reason why I really went into the last book is because I'm, I have to create, and similar to you, I, it's what I do. You know, it breathes me. But for the vast majority of my life, there was always a lot of blood in the water, and I asked the question, you were a lawyer. You were right. a hedge fund lawyer. Right. My God, you, the rest so, of your life you were toning. <laughs> that could be part of it, actually, <laughs> looking back. Um, you know, is there a different way? You know, can you go to that place? Um, and, and live in that place where it's a complete question. Or enough of a question, and I do think that you have to be in that place for an extended period of time, but not suffer so much. Here's what I got from my conversation yesterday with, with, my, with my two co-authors. If you want to scale, there's blood on your hands. Mm. You don't scale for free. Hmm. Tina Brown used to say, when we, when we was at Vanity Fair, we give them the cover, but not for free. And, um, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Krishna Das. Huge. I mean, I wrote half of my book with those chants. Hmm. And it was very helpful for me, because I'm an excitable boy, and, <laughs> you know, I need to sit in the chair. So we go to see him the last time he comes at the church we always go to. Right. And it's packed as it always is. And it starts with about 40 minutes of marketing. And at the back table, we've got this, and we've got this, and we've got this, and they did everything but the t-shirt and the, and the coffee mug. And uh, by the time he came on, I was ready to go. Mm -hmm. I thought, you don't need to do that. You let that happen. You wanted that to happen. Krishna Das wanted that to happen. Uh, and maybe it's his arrogance or his whatever belief that you can start, you can knock the audience off of its anticipation for 45 minutes and then come in and rock the house, but I don't believe it. Hmm. And I thought, you know, I love you, man, and I'm giving you money for the Kickstarter, but I'm not coming back. Because that's what scaling looks And I wrote him a note to say this, and I did not get it. We have corresponded, but I did not get a note back. <laughs> I didn't expect to. Uh, but... I think it's, I mean, I think that the process is, is hard for people like you and me along the way because we don't know what the process is. Mm. I mean, we're well, vamping every day. Well, I, I think, I think nobody knows what the process is, but I think when you own the fact that you don't know, that's when it gets hard. <laughs> no, that, no, that's when it gets good. It yeah, means you're, quite hard and that, good. But, that means you still have a shot at not being a agree. jerk. <laughs> I agree, but I think that's also when it gets really, because then you have to go to that place where you don't know how it's going to end. Um, yeah, but yeah. I'm sort of, you know, curious to find out. As, and, as am I. Yeah, I, I think there's as much wonder there as there is anything else. Plus, you know, I'm old. I've invested all this time <laughs> in it. Yeah, you think, Jesus, let me, you know, okay, let's, let's you know, uh, am I close to, you know, seeing how it's, uh, what, what happens next? Yeah. 
So, which, which kind of circles around also to uh, like what this is fundamentally about. You asked me in my mind, um, you know, what is this project about? When, um, if I offer out the term, which call Good Life Project, um, if I offer that phrase to you, in your mind, um, what, is it, what does it mean to you to live a good life? Oh, so, um, I've had an extremely full life. I mean, I've done lots and lots of things. I mean, the things you mentioned are just the tip, mm -hmm. right? And I've had amazing experience, and I've had a ton of girlfriends, which is how I learned anything. I've learned nothing from men, learned everything from women. I got married for the first time at 40 and for the third time at 50-something. At 56, I became a first-time father. So, you know, everything's kind of at a skew for me. So uh, comes my Harvard 45th reunion book. You know, and it's a big, thick red book for those in the audience who haven't had the luxury of going to Harvard. And, uh, you know, people write stuff, you know, about themselves. Um, and this was an unbelievably sad experience uh, for me to read this book because I thought they'd had really dull lives. It's Harvard and they'd had dull lives. I mean, this is what it had come down to. Work, family, the boat, they're retired, they play golf, they've had some diseases, grandchildren, you know, it was like, whoa. This was the class of 1968 at Harvard. I mean, a cusp year, the huge year, right? I mean, this was, everything was up for grabs then. I mean, who you were, you had to figure out what that was under terrible conditions. So anyway, I go to write my thing, and I say, this, this, and this, and I'm doing this, this, and this. And then I say, uh, thanks to the love, uh, thanks to the love of my wife, the forbearance of, my, of our child, and the support of my friends, uh, I finally found the life I wanted. So, you know, you know I'm a happy guy. And that's it. I mean, I, you know, work and love, God, isn't that so original? But, you know, that's what it turned out to be for me. And so I'm having a great time. I mean, I'm having a terrible time at the same time, right? I have written this novel that is so good, and publishers are running away because they're so scared of it, right? I mean, I would say, wow, they should be jumping on this. This is a, they'll make a fortune on this book, right? But, okay, and I could be hurt by that. I say, no, this is a judgment on them, not on me. I know what I did. If it doesn't sell by April 15th, I'll publish it by, by May 15th. That's the other thing I really wanted to say. The end of the gatekeepers. Mm. Right? Before, you and I could not get traction in media. Or I did. I mean, I was on Today a Show. I, was, I did every Charlie Rose. You know, I did all those things. When I was younger, right? But you, you sort of age out, or you have the unpopular thing to say, and then forget it. But in the old days, right, there was an underground press, and then they hired those people, and then they became the New York Times. There were music you know, bands, and they were the underground, and then they got hired by labels. Uh, you made a little movie, and you got hired by Warner Brothers. No more. You don't have to do that. There are these other distribution channels. So at the same time, I feel, you know, the old world is giving me a sort of mixed message. The new world is saying, go for it. Yeah. Uh, William Irwin Thompson, the future, says, at the edge of history, the wind is blowing in our faces. I like that. Hmm. I love that. It's a great place to wrap to, I think. 
I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great conversation. Thank you. I've enjoyed this far too much. You've ruined my day. <laughs> so my guest today has been Jesse Kornbuch. I'm Jonathan Field signing off for Good Life Project. <laughs>